0: Thank you, Vern Henry, for leading us this morning. Good morning to all of you. It's good to be here once again with you. I'd like to extend a special thank you to those of you who helped with the food drive last night. It was another successful event. We collected a rough uh, weight estimate of uh, just over 3,500 pounds of non-perishable food items. Someone asked me this morning what that relates to to other years, and it's down just a tick from last year. Last year we had 3,700 pounds. But value-wise, it's hard to estimate because we had a whole pile of cereal this year, and when you hit the weigh scale, cereal weighs 15 pounds, and you got eight boxes, whereas you have a a box of pork and beans hit the scale, and it's 55 pounds. But I think value-wise, the cereal might be more, so it's it's all relative. It's just a, a rough gauge, but it was a successful drive. So thank you so much to those of you who stepped up Uh, to help with that this morning. I love the story uh, of how one summer night during a severe thunderstorm, a mother was tucking her youngest boy into bed. And uh, as she tucks him in, she's about to leave, she turns off the light, and then there's a tremendous thunderclap that rolls just as she turns off the light, and this little quivering voice says into the darkness, Mommy, will you stay Stay with me tonight? And while smiling, the mom turns back and she goes over to her son and she gives him a a warm smile, she gives him a hug and says reassuringly, I can't dear, I have to sleep in daddy's room. Well a moment of silence follows as the little boy thinks that over and then with a still shaky voice he finally says, the big sissy. (laughs) We all cope with fear in different ways and even that little boy Found the way of using some bravado to cope with his fear, but from our childhood fears and onward, um, fear plays a significant role in our lives. Right now, my my oldest boy Declan, he only has to take a tea towel, throw it over his head, and go woo, and my youngest son Theo will run away screaming, goose, goose. So. We all deal with fears and it probably has to do with some of the ghostly decorations we've had around town the last week and especially last night. But nonetheless, as children, we understand childhood fears, whether that's shadows, bumps in the night, monsters in the closet. But as adults, we learn to deal with those childhood fears and we learn how to cope with them in some way or another or get rid of them altogether. But there are still fears that we as adults have that can influence our thinking and shape our actions. And when this happens, whether we realize it or not, we are being controlled in some way by fear. And thankfully, being controlled by our fears is not God's will for our lives. His word shows us that we can learn to overcome our fears rather than allowing our fears to control us. And so this morning we are going to do a case study on the power of fear and how to overcome it by examining the story of Queen Esther, the fearful queen. Before we enter God's word, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a God who is greater than even our greatest fear. And so Lord, as we examine this topic this morning, we pray that you would be the prevailing voice that would speak to our minds, speak to our hearts, speak to our deepest fears. And that, Lord, as we shed light on this by your word, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be the one who works in us through it. I pray that, Lord Jesus, we would always keep you in mind as we walk through life. And as we continue through this study this morning, we pray that we would receive what you have for us. Bless your word. Give me the boldness and the clarity to speak it the way you want me to. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Esther. If you haven't stayed there since uh, Russ read it for us earlier, please take the time now to turn to Esther chapter 4. And before we look at that specific chapter, I want to give you just a little bit of background on the story. The year is 465 BC. It's about 50 years after Nehemiah and Ezra have led some of the Jewish people back to Jerusalem from captivity in Babylon. Many of the Jewish people, however, are still living in the land of Persia under the reign of a king named Ahasuerus, or better known as Xerxes. Now, Xerxes was a pagan emperor who, at his best, was capable of grand gestures of generosity, but at his worst was equally capable of rash decisions and thoughtless cruelty driven by an emperor-sized ego and an insatiable thirst for sensual gratifications, So the story begins with Xerxes throwing a spectacular party. This is how the book of Esther begins. A spectacular party. Not just a week, not just a month, not just a couple of months. It's a six-month party. 180 days of lavish feasting for all of the VIPs of his kingdom. But it seems that the six-month party wasn't quite enough for Xerxes, and so at the end of this six month party, he throws one more lavish seven day party in his personal garden. Now, at the end of which, he wants to show off his beautiful wife, Queen Vashti, to his drunken friends. And so she de- he demands that she parade herself in front of them. Ladies, help me out here. How do you think this went? <laughs> Not well. Now, I, I hope that your husband has never demanded that you prayed yourself in front of his drunken buddies. But if you want to know how this is going to go, well, it went about how it went in this story. Surprise, surprise, Queen Vashti refuses. She says, I'm not going to degrade myself in this manner. She refuses, and this perceived insult is just too much for Xerxes' fragile ego to handle. And his advisors tell him, you know what, you can't handle this slight, you need to get rid of her. And so just like that, he kicks the queen to the curb. He gets rid of her. And then, he doesn't just leave it at that. A short time later, he stages a kingdom-wide beauty contest to find her replacement. Now, ladies, if if this doesn't sound like a real gentleman, uh, a real winner, this is the kind of guy that, no, you don't want to bring home to mom and dad. This is where the story begins. It shows Xerxes for who he really is. But now the story shifts, and this part sounds almost like a Disney fairy tale. Enter Hadassah, a Jewish orphan girl whose name is changed to Esther, meaning Morning Star. Esther was adopted by her older cousin Mordecai, who became like a father to her. Of course, Esther's exceptional beauty results in her being recruited for this competition and when she is finally brought before King Xerxes, he is so captivated by her, so taken in by her beauty, that he immediately chooses her as his next queen. He places a crown upon her head, he throws a lavish feast in her honor, and they lived happily ever after. Right? No, not quite. Not quite. If it was a Disney version, that's where it would have, they would have rode off into the sunset. He would have changed and become a great guy and everything would have been fine. But it doesn't turn out quite like that. Enter the king's second in command. An egotistical, evil, and vindictive man named Haman. So when Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman when he goes by, Haman is so enraged that he comes up with a plan to not only get back at Mordecai, but a plan to commit genocide and eradicate the entire Jewish population In the realm. And so Xerxes, having been presented by this plan by Haman, callously signs off on the plan, and in Esther chapter 3 and verse 13 we read, Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day. And that brings us to this morning's text in Esther chapter 4. Beginning there in verse 1, we set the stage. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went into, out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. Here we see that Mordecai's worst fears have been realized, and Mordecai is frantic. He has obeyed God. He has refused to bow in worship to another man. He has reserved his worship Only to God alone. He has done the right thing. And his obedience has brought about the threat of annihilation to his entire people. Can you imagine something like that? Maybe on a smaller scale. Have you ever tried to do the right thing? Something that was by your principles. You knew it was the right thing to do. And it blew up in your face. Have you ever had that happen? How did that make you feel? Have you ever faced a situation so terrifying that it made even your worst fears seem like nothing? How did you respond? How do you think you would feel if your actions were the sole reason that not only your family, but your entire nation was going to be exterminated like a bunch of rats in a single day? So considering the situation, considering the scale, the magnitude of this catastrophe, Mordecai's frantic response seems just about right, doesn't it? Now, Esther, on the other hand, in the palace, she hasn't heard about the edict of the king. And so she has no idea what danger her people are in. But there's no ignoring the loud cries of her uncle outside the city gate. She hears word of her uncle making a spectacle of himself, and so she sends one of her attendants out to find out what's going on, what's wrong. Mordecai sends the attendant back with the news of Haman's plan, along with a copy of the king's edict. Mordecai's message to Esther is crystal clear. He expects Esther to do something about this impending disaster. He expects her to get the word and immediately go and confront the king. Mordecai knows that of all people in the realm, Esther is the only one in a unique position to do anything to avert this disaster. But the only problem is, having received the message from Mordecai, Esther doesn't want to. She balks. She sends back a list of reasons as to why she can't confront the king. Esther doesn't want to do it. And so let's look at the reasons why. Why does Esther not want to go to the king? Well, it's simple. Esther is momentarily, at least, paralyzed by fear. She's paralyzed. There's a story of a man named Yanis Rus. Janis lived in Germany during the days of the Nazi ruler Adolf Hitler. And during that time, he was a young shoemaker looking to make a name for himself. Because of the power of the German government and the Nazi party at that time, he participated in public supports for the Nazi regime, hoping to gain recognition and to further his business. But after the end of of the war and the regime's downfall, he realized the error of his ways, and out of fear of reprisal, He fled to his sister's farmhouse in Slovenia to hide. It was in her barn that he hid away for not one year, not two years, not ten years. He hid away in her barn for 32 years without so much as a visit to town or interaction with anyone other than his sister. He used to cry when he would hear happy voices outside, but he dared not show himself even at his own mother's funeral. After he was finally discovered in 1977, reporters asked him what motivated him to stay hidden away for so long. And Yanis' reply was simple. Fear. He went on to share how fear had ruled his life for 32 years. He went nowhere, visited no one, and lived a life of sad regret. Yes, the threat of retribution for his crime of supporting the Nazi party was real but he had allowed his own fears of what might happen take him captive and make him a prisoner of his own choosing his final comment was if i had not been discovered i would have remained in hiding so i am happy that this happened now though the circumstances are far different like him queen esther is paralyzed from doing the right thing by the fear of what might happen if she steps out and acts on behalf of her people. In Esther chapter 4 and verse 11, we read this. All the king's officials and even the people in the province know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his golden scepter. And the king has not called on on me to come to him for 30 days. So here we see Esther looking at the reasons for why she can't do the right thing. And now before we quickly brush away Esther's fears as silly or irrational, we just need to remember, we need to remind ourselves who she is married to. Remember, the danger is very real. Just think that if Xerxes didn't think twice about getting rid of his own queen simply for refusing to parade herself in front of him and his drunken buddies... And think about the guy who didn't even think twice of signing off on a genocidal plan to eradicate a people group in his empire. And then think about the sort of guy he must be that he signed into law a decree that anyone who bugs me gets his head chopped off. If you don't have an invitation to my inner court and you show up unannounced, off with your head, unless for some reason I grant you a pardon. This is a man who is able to go this way or that on a whim, however he feels in the moment. And I can guarantee you that people weren't afraid of this law for no reason. There is a very real possibility that more than a few people had lost their heads for having interrupted the king unannounced. And so when Esther is looking at this plan to go and confront the king without an invitation, this wasn't a, a hollow threat. It was very real. Even her position as the queen did not guarantee her safety. Make no mistake about it, the danger to Esther's life was real. The fear of what might happen to her if she went to the king was real, and it paralyzed her into doing nothing. Let me ask you, have you ever been paralyzed by fear? Have you ever come up against a situation where the fear was right in your face, it just gripped you and you were paralyzed. Maybe it happened literally, where something happened where you were just unable to move. It paralyzed you. Has it ever happened internally, or something happened where you just you felt numb and unable to react or respond? Fear comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes. Maybe some of you are facing the fear of serious illness, the fear of rejection, the fear of failure. Or the simple yet crippling fear of the unknown. What might be? If you're a parent, chances are good that you have fears for your children. Whether young or old, I know that parental fear for their children is a very real thing. I can still remember the first time they handed me Declan in the hospital. And they handed him to me. The nurse had just finished scrubbing him off. She hands him to me. And I'm holding him. And I say, now what? She says, well, I'll take him down to the room. And I'm like, by myself? myself? Uh, Yeah, by yourself, you can take him down. And I remember thinking, you trust me? Well, It's my kid now, I guess. So I remember just going down to the room, holding this little life, sitting in the room and looking at him thinking, I'm responsible for this life now. And then all these thoughts start going like, what is he going to face in his life? And all these potential dangers and fears start cropping in. Suddenly it was just like God saying, you've got to trust me with this life right off the bat. Or else those fears could paralyze you and grip you and hold you back. And it's something that I've had to do ever since, because as they grow, there are new threats, new dangers, things that I could allow to grip me with fear. And so these are things that we all have to deal with in one way or another. On top of that, our news media, if you watch the news or, or read the newspaper, it's continually telling us through its coverage, through the things that it highlights and emphasizes. our news and our culture is telling us in a thousand different ways, be afraid. Be very afraid. This story, look at what happened here. Look at a child was kidnapped there. A terrorist blew up this here. And on and on the list goes, all with the same message. Live your life in fear. In contrast to that, we serve a God who throughout the pages of Scripture has one simple yet clear message. Be not afraid. Fear not. Be not afraid. All of these things, all of these things, these fears that we have, they can have the same effect on us as they did on Esther. We point out all of the potential dangers, whether real or imagined, and we're paralyzed and do nothing. In fact, I am convinced, I am convinced that one of, if not the greatest weapon that the enemy uses against Christians to keep us from making a real God-sized impact on this world for his glory is fear. You see, it's not that Esther didn't care about her people or about Mordecai. It's not that she didn't want to save them. It's not that she wasn't concerned for their safety. It's just that she was more concerned for her own safety. And that kept her from doing anything. She was looking out for number one. Her fears for herself outweighed her fears for the others. And so that kept her from stepping out. Into harm's way. Esther's situation was not the first nor the last time that God has placed someone in a perilous position and asked them to step out in faith, even if that meant putting themselves or their loved ones in harm's way. In fact, God continuously is calling men and women to exercise their faith in him through actions that require it. Noah built an ark. Abraham called to sacrifice Isaac. Moses leading the people across the Red Sea. David taking on Goliath. Daniel getting tossed in with hungry lions. Peter walking on water. Again and again and again throughout Scripture, we see people rise up in the face of fear, act in faith, and God does something incredible as a result. But what if we allow our fears to keep us from doing what God wants us to do? What if we don't step out in faith. Like Esther, we live in a time where lives hang in the balance every single day. There are the lives of the desperately poor living in squalor and poverty. There are the lives of the outcasts and the refugees with no home to return to and no other place to call home. There are the lives of the unborn who are snuffed out simply for being inconvenient, simply because they are not wanted. There are the lives of those who are enslaved by addiction, powerless to break free on their own. The list goes on and on. Then there are the the spiritually lost. What about people who don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, who are all around us? We live in a day and an age where lives hang in the balance all around us and in this world every single day. And what each one of those lives shares in common is this. No matter how desperate their situation, no matter what we think of them, each one of those lives is created by God and bears his image. Each life is important to God. Each life is loved by God, and therefore each life is worthy of our love as well. And could it be that, like Esther, God has placed us in this position of influence, in this time and place in history? At such a time as this, to do something about the broken and hurting and lost world and people around us? How will we respond? Will we step out in faith? Or, like Esther, are we going to point to all of the fearful things that might happen if we do? Perhaps, like Esther, it's not that we don't want to obey God, it's not that we don't want to step out in faith and make a difference in this world. It's not that we don't care about other people's lives. It's just that we care about our own comfort and safety more. And when that way of thinking is left unchecked and unchallenged, it controls us. It really does. And God doesn't want that. He doesn't want fear to rule our lives. Why? It's really simple, my friends. Because God wants to rule our lives. If there is even a drop of fear controlling us, God says, Get rid of it. I want to have complete and full control of your life. Do you trust me with it? That's what God wants. It's why again and again He says, Fear not, don't be afraid. I am with you. So finally, let me ask the question How can you and I overcome our fears? Well, we can overcome them exactly the same way that Esther overcame hers. First, she was reminded of who was really in control of her life. In verses 12 to 14, we read that when Mordecai heard Esther's reply, he pulls out all the stops and tells her bluntly, don't think that taking the coward's way out here is going to save your own bacon. Okay, I'm paraphrasing, right? What does he say? If you look at verse 12, it says, don't think that you alone are going to escape He's pointing out that that fallacy, that lie she's believing, that if she stays silent, yeah, maybe everyone else will get wiped out, but I'm in the king's palace, I'll be safe. And he says, don't believe that. Don't believe that you can save yourself. Don't believe that you are in control of your own life. And in doing so, he's reminding her of a very important truth. Esther, consider the possibility that the sole reason that you happened to end up in the king's palace is because the one who is truly in control of your life has placed you here to save these people. Have you considered, Esther, that God might have put you in this palace and in this place for a specific reason, and that his plan for your life is in this moment? Yes or no, will you step up to the plate? Consider that you've been placed at this point for such a time as this. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 says this, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Did you know that God has a specific plan for your life? That God has a mission for you? That he has placed you in your specific family, in your specific context, for a specific reason? And that just like Esther... He has put you in this world for such a time as this. Lives are hanging in the balance. You could be the difference. God has placed you where you are. He has uniquely positioned and gifted you to do something about it. Remember, we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do the good works which he has prepared in advance for us to do. Did you know that God has good works prepared in advance for you to do with your life? Do you know what they are? Are you walking in them? Are you looking for them? In order to accomplish this, we have to be reminded who is actually in control of our lives. Is it me or is it God? Are you in control of your destiny, or is the one who made you and ordained your life in control of your destiny? Esther needed to be reminded of that. She was not in control. God is. Secondly, we have to remember who our Father is. By bluntly reminding Esther of who was truly in control of her life, he also gently reminds her of who her Father is. Sometimes we tend to forget as well. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul teaches the difference between a life that is ruled by the indwelling Spirit of God and a life that is still ruled by our own flesh, our own carnal desires. Listen carefully to verses 13 to 15. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves again, so that you live in fear. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry out, Abba, Father. You see, a child of God is set free from fear. And to go back to fear, to go back to slavery to fear, is to forget who your father is. He is the God of the universe, the one who set the cosmos spinning. He named the stars. He paints every sunrise every sunset. He knows the beginning from the end. He called your life into existence. He created every molecule of your being. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He planned every day of your life before even one of them came to be. He loves you enough that he died for you, and he is currently, my friends, currently preparing a place for you in his heavenly kingdom. That is your father. If you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are adopted. You are a son and daughter of the King of kings, Lord of lords. Remember who your father is. Just in case you forgot, that God, he's your dad. And so we cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, help me. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, God says, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And so when we remember who our father is, we simply call out to him. Esther is moved by Mordecai's appeal. Verse 16, we read, Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. And when this is done... I will go to the king, and even though it is against the law, if I perish, I perish. When faced with danger, the child of God need not cry out in fear. The child of God simply needs to be reminded who is in control of their lives, remember who their father is, and then cry out, Daddy, help me. And he will. That is the promise. Now, I'm not going to tell you the rest of the story. You can read that on your own. Chances are you've heard it before. Suffice to say, in the long run, Esther wins. The Jewish nation wins. Haman goes for a swing. The Jewish people are saved. Okay, some of you know how the story goes, right? Everything turns out well. Why? Because Esther stepped up to the plate. She took the walk. She confronted the the king. She used her unique position. And God used that to save the entire nation. But realize that Esther won only because she overcame her fear. And she overcame her fear by being reminded who is ultimately in control of her life. Not her, but God. Remember who her father is, the one who made her. And then she called out to him. But then don't forget that all-important fourth step. She acted. A long, long time ago, in a war that took place in the Middle East, a spy was captured and sentenced to death by a general of the Persian army. The general was an unusual man, to say the least, and he had adopted a strange and unusual custom in such cases. He permitted the condemned person to make a choice. The prisoner could either face the firing squad or pass through the black door. At the moment of the the execution, as it drew near, the general ordered the spy to be brought before him and was asked this question. Which shall it be, the firing squad or the black door? This was not an easy decision. Who knows what untold, unspeakable horrors lay behind the black door? Could it be a quick and painless death or a long and agonizing one? What was behind the black door? Finally, the spy decided. The firing squad. Preferring it to the unknown horrors behind the ominous and mysterious black door. He lined up. Not much later, gunshots filled the air. The spy lay dead on the ground. The general, staring at his boots, turned to his aide and said, You see how it is with men. They will always prefer the known way to the unknown. It is characteristic of people to be afraid of the undefined, what might be. Yet I gave him his choice. And the aide was curious, and he asked, What lies behind the black door? And the general smiled grimly and replied, Freedom. And I've known only a few brave men to choose it. The one thing that we fear most in our lives is the unknown what might be, the unforeseen, the uncontrolled. This fear has the ability to immobilize us and haunt our dreams. It is when we're faced with such fear that we need to make a very important choice. Will we trust God or give in to our fears? For it is only in trusting God that we can choose true freedom. It is in him and through him and by him that we can live truly free. And make an impact in this world. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today and we acknowledge our weakness. We acknowledge, Lord, that from our childhood and on, we are a fearful people. Lord, I myself have had so many fears. Even this morning, I've had to face fears. But that, Lord, you are faithful in that when we remember who you are when we bring our fears to you, (laughs) oh Lord, you answer in such wonderful ways. You give courage. You give strength for the day. And that when we act in faith, like Esther, when we step out, we can be amazed at what you can do through our small acts of faith. And so God, I pray that for us as individuals, for us as a collective, as the Clarny Mennonite Church, I pray God that we would hand our fears completely and fully over to you. That, God, we would not be guilty of only pointing to the things that might be and to paralyze us to inaction, but that, Lord, you would stir within us a willingness to say, whatever you would have us do, Lord, give us the courage to step out in faith, to trust that you are in control of our lives and that you will be with us. Give us courage today, Lord, to do what you ask each of us to do, whether that's individually or collectively, Lord, we pray that you would help us in this. Take our fears, Lord, in your name. Amen.